You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John chapter 21 as we continue in our study this morning and... uh, we return to a verse we've just recited, uh, to verse 4, John 21 and verse 4. I think everybody's found their place. John 21 and verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do ask and pray, Father, that you be pleased to teach us this morning, to guide us, to open our hearts, Lord, to some of the great mysteries that we find in your word. Certainly one is here in our text. And Father, we pray that you also help us to not get so lost in the mystery that we don't see the plain teaching of these verses. So, Father, we ask, O oh Lord, that, Father, you would be our instructor, our teacher, our guide. Meet us, O Father, where we are. We're in various places. Meet us, O Father, and we pray, O Father, that you would minister to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, there's some things before we move on here. There's a couple of things that are really kind of left loose here that we haven't begun to address. And we see... uh, one of the one of the places where we see these things is in verse four. You know, there we're told that just as day was breaking, Jesus is on the shore, uh, yet the disciples do not know that it's Jesus. Now, if we only had this single verse that was indicating this, I don't think we would think very much of it. We would say, well, okay, they're about a hundred yards off from the shore. That's approximately a football field. And if we're on one side of a football field looking all the way across to the other side of a football field, we're probably not going to be able to notice facial features and what have you. Um, Plus, the the disciples have been fishing all night. We know this from previous messages and from the context. You know, they've made their way to Galilee. They didn't take it upon themselves to go to Galilee. Jesus has instructed them to go to Galilee. He's promised to meet them there. They've made their way up to Galilee. And they've decided to spend the evening on the lake. They've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. Perhaps they're not really paying much attention to who's on the shore. Perhaps they're too far away. Perhaps being that day is just breaking, there's not enough light for them to notice. Uh, these are um, a lot of things. But this isn't the only text that we have that seem to indicate that there's problems. Uh, after Jesus has been raised, there seems to be problems recognizing him. Uh, for example, if we go to back to chapter 20 and we look at verses 19 and 20, there we see, on, and we've looked at these verses quite a bit over the last few weeks, there we see it's Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus, you know, the disciples are behind closed doors, behind locked doors. They're in fear of the leaders, the religious leaders, and suddenly Jesus appears before them. And uh, with the light that Luke's gospel shines on this event, we, we learn that they're fearful. They're afraid. They think they're seeing a spirit. 
And Jesus says, listen, a, a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. Here, see my hand, see my side. And it appears from that text that it's only after Jesus eats a piece of fish that they begin to calm down. Now, we could say, fair enough. I mean, it's not every day. You're, and imagine the doors are locked and suddenly someone appears. You would be bewildered with astonishment and perhaps, um, you know, it's hard to say how you would, you, you would feel about that. But when we look, we go back just a little bit to verse 11, chapter 20, verse 11. There we find Mary Magdalene weeping outside the tomb. Now, she has been to the tomb. She's discovered it's, it's empty. She's run to Peter and John to, to announce that it's empty. And Peter and John have come. They've discovered it's just the way Mary described it. And at some point, Mary comes back, and she's in the garden. The tomb was in a garden area. She's weeping. And... Um, her, you know, her conclusion is someone has taken away Jesus' body. And, um, and here we learn that Jesus is actually standing right behind her in verse 14. You know, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus. You see that? She turned around and saw Jesus. He's right behind her. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, some have advocated this explanation that perhaps her eyes are so full of tears that she can't. She can't notice that it's Jesus. And I love some of the facial expressions you're making right now. You're not buying that, are you? <laughs> In fact, one of the commentaries that I read that, that posited that explanation, I couldn't believe they did because they're so brilliant in many other areas. And I'm like, really? I don't buy that for a second. I don't buy that for a second. And... Um, she does. She's right in front of Jesus, but she doesn't recognize her. And we have one more that should be brought in. You don't need to turn there, but I've made a lot of references to Luke 24, and especially to the two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem, traveling back to their village of Emmaus. And, you know, at some point in their walk, their seven-mile journey uh, to Emmaus, Jesus joins them. And to them, he's just a stranger. And in that text, something really interesting is told of, to us is that they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. Now, um, lots of things could be said about that. There's lots of pastoral reasons that could be brought, I think, and put forward for that. And that would be a study for another day. The question that's before us now is uh, why? The question that three-year-olds are famous for. Why? Why are they having trouble recognizing Jesus? Well, uh, here, Jesus is in a resurrected body. That's usually the very next step that, that is taken in these discussions is, is we're, we're taken to Jesus' resurrection body. And let me add this. It's important that we understand this, is that the resurrection of Jesus is entirely different than simply, say, Lazarus being raised from the dead. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but... You know, in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. Jesus commands him to come out of the tomb, and he comes out of the tomb. And we have numerous uh, examples of people being raised from the dead. You can think of Lazarus. You could go to the Old Testament. You can think of Elijah raising a uh, widow's uh, son. You can think of Elisha raising the Shunammite son. You can uh, go to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, uh, a widow's son. Uh, Jesus raises from the dead. Peter raises Tabitha 
from the dead. We talked about Eutychus sitting in a window, in a, th a third-story window. I brought that up kind of jesting a few weeks ago, and that's why we don't allow anyone to sit in these windows. Paul spoke for a long time. He fell in a deep sleep, and he fell out the window. Now, we don't want anyone falling out the window. Paul was able to run around and raise him from the dead. D don't anybody think that, that Rick can do the same? Um, we'll just keep everyone out of the windows. How's that sound? Uh, but all kidding aside and all jesting aside, we have these cases. But in all of these cases, their lives are simply returned to them. They are still now in a perishable body. Um, Jesus is different. Um, there's two phrases that Paul uses, one in Colossians, that it describes so wonderfully, describes. And these are both sermons for another day. But let me just say a couple of words about these things. Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn, if you will, from the dead. In Colossians chapter 1, I think verses 15 and 18, he, makes, he uses that word. What is it? That's, that's, that's language borrowed from the Old Testament, and that speaks to the preeminence and dignity of Christ. He's firstborn. He is the first one, okay, who's born in this way, uh, in a glorified, resurrected body, if you will. But the other one that Paul uses is in the context of 1 Corinthians 15. And if you will turn there, uh, in verse 20, Paul uses another really interesting phrase to describe the resurrection of Jesus. And while you're turning there, for context's sake, you know, Paul is making an argument here. Um, you know, he's making the argument that if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, Verse 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And to clinch his argument, he uses something that's easy to miss. But once you begin to see it, you see, this is not just a, it's just not clinching the argument. This, this, this is a, I mean, in seminary, we used to say, boy, this will preach. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, someone will say, Rick, I don't see it. I don't see, you're talking like it's earth-shattering, and I don't see it. Well, first fruits is borrowed from the Old Testament. And if we were living in Old Testament times, and we were raising our crops, if you will, we were instructed to take the first fruits of our field, and we were to offer it to the Lord in thanksgiving. And what did the first fruits of the field, what did that, what did that, what was that emblematic of? It was emblematic of the Lord's blessing us, but it was a part that represented the whole. The first fruits was part of the field, part of the, of the fruitfulness of the field that's offered to God, but it represents a harvest, doesn't it? And if we think about this, Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first fruits. He is a part that represents the whole. So you see that here, um, Jesus as being the first fruits, this guarantees that the things that Paul's going to be talking about throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians, namely that we're going to get a resurrection body, 
a glorified body, it's guaranteed. Jesus is the first fruits of this harvest. It's not uncommon in the New Testament for evangelism and the fruits of evangelism to be likened to fruitfulness, right? And to a harvest. So here we see this wonderful uh, illustration. So Christ is the first fruits of this harvest. Jesus' resurrection is quite different from these various uh, folks who have simply been raised. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus was not raised from the dead into a glorified body. His life was simply returned to him. A few, a few years later, Lazarus does die. A few years later, uh, all of the other uh, folks that had been raised, Eutychus, all of them, they eventually die, don't they? But if you go, if you look uh, further, um, say for, look to verse 40 for sake of context, Paul's going on, he's speaking about the resurrection glorified body. He says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, Generally speaking, when we're thinking and we're talking and we're asking the question, why don't the disciples recognize Jesus? We usually, the discussion will usually go into, well, Jesus is now glorified. He's now in a glorified body. And the rest of that discussion is usually brought in by analogy that is derived from what is promised to us in regards to our own glorified bodies. Does that sound sort of clear? Kind of? Well, let's flesh it out. In verse 42, Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, he's pointing to the promised resurrection that's going to happen at the end of this age when Jesus returns, and he says that what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It needs no commentary that we are in bodies that are perishing, right? As we're getting older, we get it. We understand it. You know, we're, we're, we're praying for people that are grieving this morning. You know, you know, as soon as this service is over, I'm going to be helping a family make funeral arrangements. That's, you know, it needs no commentary that we are in bodies that are perishing. But as we, as we apply this to Jesus, you know, this, I was thinking this morning, you know, it's, it's like, it sounds like Easter and it sounds like Christmas at the same time. Because Jesus comes in a body that is perishable. It might be hard for us to think, oh, wait a second, Jesus is the God-man. He's in a body that's perishable. Yes, that's on purpose. He has to come in a body that's perishable because that's the point in his coming. He comes to die. He's born of the Virgin Mary, miraculously conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, but, he's, but he takes on a body that's like ours, and it's perishable. And that's demonstrated at the cross, isn't it? Jesus does indeed die on the cross. And Paul says, what is so imperishable is raised imperishable. Well, we can certainly apply that to Christ because we can apply that to ourselves, can't we? I mean, if we are going to get imperishable bodies, and that's something to think about once in a while, you know, especially when we have doctor's visits and we have various things, one of these days, that's not going to be necessary. There's not going to be no medical field at all. What's going to be the point of the medical? I don't mean to, a lot of you guys are giving your lives to the medical field, but listen, there aren't going to be any preachers either. There's not going to be any need for us. And that's a good thing. 
We're not going to have, you know, broken souls to minister to in heaven because no one's going to be broken. Nor are we going to have diseases in heaven because no one's going to be diseased. We're going to be in bodies that are imperishable. It's hard for us to get our minds around that. But if we're going to get that, we would certainly expect Jesus to get that, would we not? Would he be running around in a body that's lesser than ours? That's inconceivable. So you can see why theologians go to this analogy here. Um, as we continue in verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. And if you look at Jesus, I mean, he is sown in dishonor, isn't he? The shame of the cross. In theology, we call this the humiliation of Jesus, his humiliation. He does this uh, voluntarily. He does this um, uh, really to show us the way out of our mess. Uh, Jesus hangs on a cross. That is a, a form of execution that is rendered, it's, it's rendered for uh, the worst of criminals. So he is uh, sown in dishonor, but he's raised glorious. You know, uh, raised glorious, sown in weakness. Jesus' weakness is voluntary. Um, but he, he does, he succumbs, if you will, to the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin and Pilate, and, but he's raised in power. You know, read the first seven verses of Romans this afternoon. You'll see he's, he's raised in power, if you will. Um, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. We don't know much about the spiritual body. We just don't know much about this. We're really reaching the point, I think, at, at this point, where it, it, we're really starting to run out of, out of light, if you will. Um, verse 45 Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, this is something that belongs to Jesus only. We are not going to be life-giving spirits. Uh, currently, we're involved in evangelism, which is life-giving, but it's not us who, is, who are the source of this life. It's God who is the source. He must make our labors fruitful or they'll come to nothing. We'll be like the fishermen fishing all night, catching nothing. Um, Jesus is the author, if you will, uh, and he is the source of life. He is a life-giving spirit. Um, and we can continue on that. And, of course, we see it becomes increasingly complicated. And judging by the looks on a couple of your faces, it's like this is getting really complex. Well, if you continue reading these arguments, uh, they, they just one of the things that frustrates me is they just go out into really into conjecture land is what I call it. I tell Tammy, this is conjecture land where we're stacking conjecture upon conjecture upon conjecture. And what frustrates me about that is if we've got time to do that, we probably are neglecting other things that we should be doing. As pastors, I think the objective in preaching is to keep the plain things the main things. So sometimes you'll notice I get a little frustrated when we're putting a lot of massive amount of time to piling conjecture upon conjecture upon conjecture, um, you know, I know myself, I don't have time to do that. And um, my guess is we're, you know, what about evangelism? What about reaching out to families that are lost? There's plenty of them around. What about all these other things that we're supposed to be occupying our time with? And I think that as we continue to march in conjecture after conjecture after conjecture, we're actually missing one of the plain life-transforming lessons that's right here in front of us. Um, you know, and, and, and that's this. Even though Jesus isn't recognized by his disciples, he is nevertheless 
there. And I really think this is what we're to be fastening ourselves on. Even though they don't recognize him, he is nevertheless there. Now, let's, let's think that thought through on a continuum, going from unbeliever to believer. You know, as unbelievers, we, we, may, uh, we may pay lip service to the existence of Jesus. We may say, yeah, I believe Jesus. Yeah, he, he lives. Uh, he was a great teacher. Um, or we may even go further and say, yo, yeah, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe he, he, he lived a perfect life without sin. He died on the cross. Third day he, was, he rose from the dead. Forty days later, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty there. He's now in session with the Father. I believe all that. But we're merely mentally assenting to that. It hasn't changed our lives. In terms of our lives, we're still living as if Jesus isn't alive at all as if Jesus isn't around at all, as if Jesus can't see us at all. Uh, or even you could go further, you know, in, in the uh, Psalter, twice actually, uh, we are told that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, what is that phrase all about? That phrase is all about sin. I mean, when people plot evil, and when we plot evil, we think as long as nobody sees us, <laughs> As long as no one can see us, we can get away with something. Currently, as we're having this service, somebody somewhere, many people, many places, are plotting evil, thinking as long as no one sees it, I'm going to get away with it. And that's why the psalmist refers to this person as a fool. Don't you realize everything is done in the plain view of Almighty God? Just because you don't recognize His presence doesn't mean He's not there. Does that make sense? Well, in Acts 17, Paul says something that I think is so wonderful. Um, we don't need to turn there, but one of the things he says, in, in Acts 17, Paul is in that, one of the things that's going on in that chapter is Paul is before the people of Athens. He's in a place called the Areopagus. He's given a lecture. And at one point, speaking to all of the unbelievers that are gathered there in Athens, he says that God is not far from each one of us. God is not far from each one of us. And, you know, I think it, I think it kind of, he says something similar in Romans when he says, you know, we don't need to go up to heaven you know, to learn these things. Or we don't need to go down into the pit to learn these things. But these things are, are near. He tells the people of Athens, God is not far from any one of us. And how is God revealed to humanity? He's revealed to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, isn't he? So logically, we could say Jesus is not far from any one of us. And how is Jesus revealed? He's revealed to us in his word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, right? So we can announce to all human beings on this planet, Jesus is not far from any one of us. Just because we don't recognize that he's there, he is nevertheless there. Now, continuing on our continuum, let's think about after we come to faith. There are times, and there are wonderful times, where Jesus just seems so tangible, doesn't he? It's like he's right. It's almost like I can reach out and, I can reach out and take his hand. 
but then they vanish. Don't those seasons, don't those moments vanish? Like you wonder where they go. Your mind goes somewhere and it's gone and it's over. It's like a nanosecond where you, where you experience that. And that's what I want to address with the rest of this sermon. In fact, the title of this sermon is a tangible, a tangible communion with Jesus. What do I mean by tangible? You know, I did one of those Google searches Friday morning. You know, sometimes those are handy. And I just did the word tangible, you know, and the words I got was easily seen, felt, or noticed. And interestingly enough, there was an example sentence below it that went something like this. Uh, they say the economy is improving, but we're looking for tangible evidence of this. Okay, what would that mean in that context? Well, they say the economy is improving, but we're looking for evidence that we can see, like groceries coming down, gas coming down. Uh, in other words, we're, we're, looking, we're looking for evidence that we can feel, evidence that we can see. That's what I mean by tangible. Of course, I'm not suggesting that we're going to be able to see Jesus in this lifetime the way we can see one another, but we see him with our heart's eye. And I am suggesting that even, even as believers... We still struggle with what we struggled with as unbelievers. There are times when Jesus doesn't seem like he's near, isn't there? Or we're not mindful of his presence. So how do we move? Um, how do we move from there? Well, one, I think the first, and, I'm, and at this point, I'm going to give you, I'm gonna, there's one, one point to this sermon that's a tangible communion with Jesus, but I'm going to give you five things that I think are helpful and improving that and moving in that direction, you know, things that I've thought through and prayed for, you know, how do we move towards a more tangible communion with Jesus? And the first is Jesus is not far from any one of us. As I've already said, what does Paul tell the, we can say this to anybody. Paul says it to the unbelievers in Athens. So why can't we say this? Why couldn't we say this on the street to whoever would listen? God is not far from any one of you. And from there, we can say, well, God reveals himself in Christ. Jesus is not far. We don't need to climb. We don't need to climb the Himalayas to get up near as heaven as we can to find Jesus. Jesus is not far from each of us. Where is Jesus revealed? In his word. Each one of us is holding a copy of his word. He's not far from any one of us. The average person in this country has a Bible. It's not far. It's kind of amazing. So, um, and, and, and doesn't Jesus promise his disciples in Matthew 28, Lo, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Doesn't he promise? He promises. So let's think of his promise when he seems far away or when he seems abstract. You know, uh, what do I mean by abstract? Some might say, well, you know, um, and I can envision this. I've had, I've had these conversations before with folks in my, in my office and various places, and sometimes my office is right there in the hallway. My office actually is usually wherever we're having these kind of discussions. Um, and people say, you know, it, you know I, I know Jesus is there, but it doesn't always seem like he's there. And one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is, well, is, is Jesus like a theory like, theoretically, I know he's there. Like, I know he's there. The word tells me he's there, so he must be there. Or is Jesus like a concept, like an idea, if you will? Is he like that? 
Well, how do, how do we move from these theories? How do we move from this conception, uh, uh, this uh, conceptualized Jesus to a more tangible communion? I think the first step in that is to look at his promise. He promises to be with us always. We don't need to wonder if he is with us or not. He has promised to be with us always. There is no chance that he wouldn't be with us always because he has told us that he will be with us always. So I think that is a logical first step to get out of the way. He's there. And as we think about our four instances, if you go back to John 21, if you think about these four instances, you know, in verse 4, John 21, the disciples don't realize that Jesus is staring at them. They're fishing. They haven't caught anything. And what's amazing by this, I mean, some people will say, you know, they don't recognize Jesus because Jesus is a football field away. Uh, it's daybreak. It's not real light yet. Uh, blah, 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 blah. But Jesus calls out to them and says, children, do you have any fish? And see, I, 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 don't, I don't buy all of that because they hear his voice. Now, I've been in school. One of the first things that you really learn when you're in school is the sound of your teacher's voice. It's not long. It's probably not more than a class or two before if the teacher is in the hallway and you hear the teacher, you know it's the teacher. Even though you can't see the teacher, you know it's the teacher, don't you? Why? Because you've heard the voice. You've spent so much time under the voice. These men have spent three years with Jesus. How many hours of instruction do they have hearing Jesus speak? And he speaks, yet they don't recognize his voice. They don't recognize his voice. My point is, and I think the point of this isn't to go piling conjecture on conjecture, I think the point of this is they don't recognize him, but he's nevertheless there. Same thing could be said of Mary Magdalene. She doesn't recognize Jesus. And you know what the beautiful thing is the posture. Mary is weeping. She's crying. And Jesus is right behind her. You know, there's a saying, you know, especially in the military, you know, my six, what's that mean? It's this reference to a clock. Six is, it's behind you. You got my six. Jesus is right behind Mary. She doesn't know it, but he's right behind her, isn't he? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize Jesus, but he's walking with them, teaching them, instructing them. And that brings me to a second point, and I will tell you of the five points I'm going to give you, this is my favorite. I'm not saving the best for the last. I'm going to give it to you now. This one here has is, is blessed me more than any of the others, and it's that Jesus is watching over his people. That's fine. I think we got that. Jesus is watching over us. We got that. But he's watching over us with earnest and eager attention. Jesus isn't just watching the disciples out on the boat. He's watching them earnestly and eagerly and attentively ready to give them what they need at the exact time they need it. What do you think of that? Right now, Jesus is not only watching us, but he's watching us with an eagerness and an attentiveness. 
Someone may have come in here this morning thinking, oh, Jesus is watching me, all right, but he's watching me with a scowl on his face. It's easy to fall into that, isn't it? No. I mean, sin can bring his displeasure and can bring his discipline, but his discipline is loving. And even in his lovingness, he is still watching over us eagerly and attentively for only one purpose. It's to make us more like himself. It's, it's for the purpose of blessing us, isn't it? So we want a more tangible communion with Jesus. Let's reason for this. Okay, Jesus, you've promised to be with us always. You've promised to be with me. I know there's no chance you're not with me. Let me get that out of the way. But you're not just watching me. You're not just with me, but you're actually with me with this eager anticipation, this, this eager attentiveness, if you will, this earnest attentiveness, you're with me. To me, that starts to make the concept become more real, doesn't it? Jesus is full of love, grace, and truth. We see his love on the cross, don't we? We see his love on the cross. What about grace and truth? Well, his grace, I mean, this helps us. Okay, Jesus is watching us with earnest and eager attention, but he's also watching us with a welcomeness. He's gracious. He welcomes. He's compassionate. He is merciful. Now, a lot of times grace and truth are put together as opposites, you know, where, okay, when Jesus is full of grace and truth, okay, he's got grace, he's gracious sometimes, and other times he's truthful, then he's gracious, then he's truthful. No, that's not how Jesus is. He's 100% full throttle gracious. He's 100% full throttle truthful. Well, what does that mean? That means that Jesus is welcoming. He's kind, he's compassionate, he's merciful to all who come to him. But he will also tell us the hard things that we need to hear. We mustn't always remember that sometimes we have to tell each other hard things. And in those times, a lot of us think, okay, that's not gracious. That's not being gracious. Well, it can be done ungraciously. It can be done in a way that's cruel. But telling people hard things is not in and of itself ungracious. In fact, telling people hard things can be the most gracious thing you can do if it's done in love. We're to follow Jesus in that and then respect that we're to be I mean, we're to strive to be just like him, 100% gracious and 100% truth-telling. Generally speaking, our personalities are polarized towards one or the other. You know, people that are really, really gracious and really merciful, they don't generally care. A lot of times they don't care about truth. They don't care what you believe. They're just going to love on you, and they're fun to be around. I mean, they are fun to be around because you just feel with these folks, you feel like, wow, I can just be myself. Yeah, because they don't really care. what. You, I mean, they don't really get around to the truth. Whereas people that are really bent on the truth without the grace, sometimes we can see them, you know, we're happy for them because, you know, they get around to parsing out what the truth looks like and everything, but there's a coldness. There's a coldness. You wouldn't dare um, let your hair down around these folks because there's this, there's just this coldness. You just don't feel comfortable. We're not to be either. We're to be both. Jesus is both. We need to understand he's both. We can come to him. He'll be welcoming of us. Because he's earnestly and attentively watching us, caring for us, and he's going to welcome us, and he's never going to sacrifice his welcoming spirit, his welcoming disposition at the altars of his truth. He's not going to do that. He's going to give us the hard things when we need the hard things in this gracious spirit. We need not be afraid. 
Sometimes I think it's easier for us to keep Jesus at a distance. Isn't it? I mean, there's entire denominations that are doing that. Looking to all kinds of other things to be between them and Jesus. We need not do that. Jesus lives to intercede. I'm not going to say much about that because we're going to get that next time. Um, I think next time we are going to move on from Genesis or from uh, Genesis, John 21 verses 1 through 14. I think this is the last message in that text. Uh, uh, but we're going to be looking at Peter, and we'll be talking probably inevitably about Jesus' intercession. Uh, he lives to intercede for us. He's praying for us. But for right now, let's just mention it that he's praying for us, praying to the Father. The Son prays to the Father for us all day long. It's always comforting to know someone's praying for you. Sometimes I'll send a note out, you know, we're, we're just praying for you, you know. Just want you to know we're thinking about you and praying. That's comforting, isn't it? When someone sends you a note like that, it's comforting. It tells, it, it, it tells you, even regardless of where your faith is at, it at least tells you this, that, that somebody cares, you know. Um, but the last thing, and I'll move quickly on it is that Jesus takes his abode with all who are trusting in him. You know, if we're in Christ this morning, we're in possession of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is present with us by way of the Holy Spirit, right? I think we got that one. So as we're thinking towards a, a more tangible communion with Jesus, we recognize first that um, he promises to be with us always, that he's watching us with earnest and eager uh, attention, you know, and that three, he's full of love, grace, and truth. You know, four, he intercedes for us. You know, and five, if we're in Christ, we have possession of the Holy Spirit. He's made his abode in our hearts. So hopefully that's helpful. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you, Father. Sometimes we do feel like we are groping in the dark but we're actually groping in the light. Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to bless us with these, these, um, these truths that we derive from your word, Father, to help us realize a more tangible communion with you. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to uh, cause these things to have fruit in our hearts and our lives. I pray, Father, that none of us would just leave these truths here and just say, oh, that sounds good, and forget about it before we're at the bottom of the steps. I pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to cause these truths to reverberate deeply in our hearts, Lord, and that, Father, we would take these truths to heart. We would wrestle through these truths until we are now enjoying a more tangible communion with you. And, Father, we pray for these things, not, not simply for our own benefit, but, Father, we pray for these things first and foremost that you'd be glorified by them. You'll be glorified, O oh Lord, as we have... Uh, a more tangible communion with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.